the high school dream, it's always not my actual high school. It's always like some weird, like, you know, made out of wood, like weird, like fort type. It's like high from the, the Dave Eggers penned Where the Wild Things Are <laughs> movie kind of high school. Sure. I don't, I've never seen that, but I'm going to just lean in and say yes. I thought that was uh, Spike the, Jones. Yeah, it sounds more like a Spike Jones joint. Spike- so, yeah. yeah, so like the, the, the dream of not, not going to class all quarter slash semester, and then you have to take the test. It's like, did that ever happen to anybody? Do you know anyone who forgot about a class? It's just like the stress of like, have you ever had like the compounded one where it's like you're trying to read your schedule? And like of your classes and you can't actually like figure out where the class is or where to yes. go. It's like, yeah, it's like, what, why? I have had that one too. What's I it? never had any stress related to this after like the first day. Totally agreed. And in fact, the showing up to class in the last day and it's like exam day and you've been skipping it all semester is actually my only recurring dream. I don't really have any other recurring dreams. Dave, what's your recurring dream? I don't dream. We've talked about I this forgot before, about right? that. I just see a deep blackness when I sleep. That's it. That sounds incredible. You never, ever dream? Very infrequently. It's like if I wake up at three o'clock in the morning for like a noise or something like that, and then I fall back asleep, then sometimes I have a dream. But if I sleep yeah, through like the drip, night- dip into the REM? I don't. I don't dream. I don't retain them. An- another one I have, Stan, only Stan because Dave doesn't care, is uh, finding coins. The, the money is always in coin form, never in bill form. And I have to like collect the coins and they're always like sort of serendipitously found or, like, you know, in someone's house or something like that or my house. That one's weird. That is a weird one. I cannot relate to that one. I, I still want to talk about Dave's lack of dreams. Isn't that weird? Dave, maybe it's time to tone down the CBD oil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, he dabs it on his temples every night. If I do CBD oil, then I just dream like crazy because you know what's in there. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. That's what's in there. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. It's an audio medium, so you can't see Stan's, I don't, I don't even know what to call those hands, just, you know. Wild gesticulations. Wild gesticulations. <laughs> Semaphore with the hands. Uh, Stan's, it, it's always, it's, it's good to see you. You know, another another week of, of, of amazingly crappy news and happenings. Mm-hmm. In the United States. In the United States, and, yeah. And I mean, I'm I sure elsewhere. Eastern Europe, too. I'm sure elsewhere, I'm sure all over the world, but yeah. the ones that are close, you know, the hits closest to home, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have friends like you to, to have this routine with, to give me something to look forward to every week. Cause otherwise it would be a bleak, bleak existence. Wow. Cool. And with that, it's, Dennis, <laughs> it's, it's our Godfather Dave Harbinger. Wow. I only speak when Stan speaks. Also, that's the Godfather Dave Harbinger. Yeah. I just agree. Shane. Yeah. <laughs> Because you know what I have to say about this week? GF. Yeah. <laughs> GF'd. GF. Here's what I have to say about this week. We're going to give our money for this week away. 
I've decided a hundred percent, hundred percent. Oh yeah, I was I was already thinking this. All of it. There's I I heard I read about a a Colorado. I don't know if it's Colorado based or they have a Colorado um, chapter or something like that. But Colorado is in a unique position where essentially all around us are states that will immediately or very quickly outlaw abortion. And Colorado, it's, I believe, state constitutionally protected. They're going to have fleets of vehicles that will be posted by the border to provide like the pill-based consultation that is required for that particular service. And because you have to go into the state or have some kind of consultation with a doctor. And so they will basically have roving doctors. And that is definitely a, uh, a foundation, a group that I would love to support. Great. Book it. Let's send them the money. It's booked. I uh, will find something to give money to in Illinois too, because Illinois is in a similar situation to Colorado, I think, where it will be surrounded by states that quickly uh, also outlaw abortion. And uh, f- that. Yeah, screw so. it. I actually know for a fact that uh, I'm the product of ancestors who chose to have abortions over the years because abortions were legal, as as I understand it, always legal in the Soviet Union. And sometimes I even think about like whether I would exist if like grandparents of mine chose not to have them. And then maybe like my parents wouldn't exist and then maybe I wouldn't be here. And it's this weird cascade of decisions that shape the lives that we have today. And I think maybe in the United States, it's not something people talk about very frequently because there's so much taboo around it. But so many of us, if not all of us, are products of ancestors who chose to have abortions or terminate pregnancies for countless reasons for millennia. And to think that we're trying to pretend like that's something that women shouldn't or people shouldn't have access to, it's it's very puzzling and we don't like it. And that's why I'm really glad that we get to donate some of our proceeds and use this platform to support causes that we think make the world a better place. Look, all I, all I have to say, and this is like fully unscripted. We didn't even talk about this before we got on the microphone. We're just talking. We're just talking here. Where the hey, wrong I'm people to be, well, Once again, we're the wrong people to be talking about this, being who the three of us are. But listen, if you don't think you know anybody who's had an abortion or that someone you care about has had an abortion, you do. Okay? Just be yeah. real with yourself. And it was important. Exactly. Yeah. So that's sort of the vibe in our personal <laughs> lives today. It's not going to be the vibe of the whole episode. Instead, we're going to try to keep it fun, light, and loose on the dive down as we usually do. And we're going to talk about a couple Twitter threads that caught our eye and really highlighted a lot of the positivity within the community, within this game, and, and especially among competitors who've accomplished so much in Magic play. So the first thread that was started by Collins Mullen, um, the second one was started by Mason Clark. One was about ways that magic has changed their perspective on life outside of the game. The other about things that we've learned from other people that improved our game. We're going to highlight some of those personal experiences for us, what other people have taught us and how others have improved our lives or our play. Yeah, so hopefully this lead to some Good vibes, personal sharing of stories, and just kind of a, a way to lift everybody's moods this week a little bit. Hopefully it doesn't get too serious, but I think we are going to get uh, sharing. It's going to be about sharing. Sharing first, is caring. Yeah. But first, Stan. But first, let's housekeep. We got a great list of new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. We got the Pink Hat Boy. We got Max D. We got Dark Poet Bill. We got Cat M. 
And we got Shipley O. Wow. That's a big list of new citizens. Yeah. Thank you all for joining the Dive Down Nation. We are so grateful to have you in our lovely little community. Also, shout out to Clyde A for going up a tier in their support. We see you, Clyde, and we appreciate you as well. If you would like to support the show, join us in our humble crusade to make the world a slightly better place. And also just make sure we can pay our editor, pay for (laughs) fun swag and gear that we mail out to people, pay for the deck boxes that I think are on a boat somewhere in the Caspian Sea. Uh, We haven't heard anything in a minute, but... My fingers are crossed that I don't know how. I mean, if it went through the Caspian Sea, that's they really went the wrong way if these things were printed in China. I'm just saying, or something went very wrong if they went west out of China instead of east to, to Los Angeles. You know how sometimes if you lose your luggage in an airplane or you have a checked bag that ends up in the wrong continent, they'll deliver that bag to you at three in the morning unannounced. I think that's what's going to happen with these deck boxes. Can we tell the story that you're alluding to right now about the heart within the Dive Down Nation we should, that you no, were a part of? We can't of? name names. We just shouldn't no name names. any names. Yeah. So, so this week, a patron of ours, a longtime friend of, of the show, popped into the Chicago channel in our Discord server to say that their mother-in-law had lost a very important bag to them at O'Hare. The, sh- the big Chicago airport. Biggest in the world, O'Hare. Pride of, pride of the Windy City. I don't think that's true anymore, but is it still, is it true again? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's always been true. Okay. It's always been true. They're growing bigger in Chicago. But anyway, they, he We asked keep us, annexing Park Ridge to just yeah, keep just it add more, add more runways. He, he reached out to the citizens of the Dive Down Nation to ask if anybody could possibly help with rectifying <laughs> the situation. And multiple people <laughs> in the Dive Down Discord server, members of the, the server and the Chicago channel specifically, went to O'Hare or we're at O'Hare and just stop by the lost and found with a picture of the bag or with a description of the bag and ask if anybody had turned in anything like like that there. And eventually the bag was returned due to the unstoppable pressure of the dive down nation lobbyists who kept showing up there. That's right. But it's that kind of stuff that just, I mean, really, <laughs> it didn't end up helping probably, but it was really amazing to see everybody say, hey, we're going to help out with this. Yeah. I bet that never happens in the Faithless Brewing Discord. Mm. <laughs> you think Cave Dan is going to an airport for you? I, I doubt it. I don't think either of you two. I mean, getting out to O'Hare sucks. Oh I, yeah, I, I don't live close to O'Hare anymore. I used to live close to it. You know what? I made some phone calls. Yeah, on on behalf oh, of this unnamed you. patron, I w- was ready to go. I went to O'Hare to pick up my wife from a trip, but by then Stan's the wife progress had been made. Yeah, in the case of the missing bag. But if you want to be a part of a community like that. A community of sleuths. Of yeah. Amateur, amateur detectives, really. Kid detectives, really, is what, what makes up the Discord. <laughs> it's Encyclopedia Browns of the world. Uh, <laughs> so thank you, all patrons. Uh, we're also brought to you by Manatraders. Manatraders.com. Sign up code, the dive down, 15. 15% off your first two months of Manatraders service. Yeah, they're the best. Uh, I see, you know. I see no reason to use anything else. I'm sure the other ones are good, probably, but they're not as good as Mana Traders because Mana Traders is fast, has all the cards you need, has like 17,000 bots that are schlepping your cards back and forth between themselves, between you. You think they have like a giant arc? Do you think there's one bot that has all the cards? The and Urbot. Like it, and, and, if you, and if you hack the Urbot, you just get all the cards. Is this, is this the, the plot of Ocean's <laughs> 18? We're, we're on it. This is what's the one with Nick Cage where he steals the Declaration of Independence? National Treasure? Yeah. This is, yeah. This is the this curse is of Curly's Gold. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, I was just referencing that movie the other day and no one got it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which one? National Treasure or no, like, the like City Slickers 2? Yeah. City, City Slickers 2. Legend of Curly's Gold. Yeah. And that's why the three of us have a podcast together because there's no hesitation <laughs> about what the Legend of Curly's Gold was. <laughs> so there's no, as we, as we referenced last week, by the way, we're doing this thing where we're focusing more fully on individual episode topics. There was a bunch of cool challenges and stuff this weekend, I'm sure. Uh, but we are focusing on our dive down topic that Stan alluded to. So you guys want to get into this? Yeah. Let's get into let's it. Let's do it. Cool. So like we mentioned up top, there were two Twitter threads. Uh, one started by Collins Mullen. I'm going to read the tweet. Read the tweet here. Collins Mullen, uh, towards the beginning of last week, said there are a ton of... In response to someone talking about learning a specific uh, thing within magic. Let me see what the tweet that actually started. It was... It was Andre five. Jude. There you go. Maybe it's Andre Judd. It's at Andre underscore MTG underscore who originally wrote one MTG concept I wish non-MTG people would learn is, quote, playing to your outs. That idea translates so well into real life. True. I think that's a really important one that we might touch on later. But, you know, Collins then, quote, retweeted that uh, Andre's tweet and and said, there are a ton of life lessons like this that I've learned from magic. One of my favorites is learning to focus on things inside of your control and accepting the things that aren't under your control. What are some of the ways that have changed, that MTG has changed your perspective on life? And then later on last week, Mason Clark also posted, you know, the well-known Mason Clark lately of winning DreamHack Dallas said, what's something you heard someone say in magic that helped you level up? One that sticks out to me was Brad Nelson or Freak MTG talking on a stream about Kaladesh cards and saying, I can easily come up with reasons why cards are bad, but I am going to try and find out why they are good instead. Shane, I hope you're listening closely to that. Uh, Brad, why you got to throw me under the bus like that? But anyway, you know, these led to a lot of conversation on the Discord server and on Twitter, and we thought it would be a fun thing for us to do on a week like this, where we just talk about some of the things that we've heard or some of the things that we've thought about that have made a difference in our magic life or in our life life, or maybe, maybe, just maybe, in both. But I think what we're going to do is start simple and try to not rock anybody's world too much, but we're going to talk <laughs> about level ups in magic first. Yeah. I, I kind of gravitated more quickly to mason's tweet and concept about like you know just level up ideas i think it's easier to be like what's maybe better at magic or what thought processes have maybe better at magic and then extrapolating those to your life i think takes uh, takes a bigger brain like my two co-hosts so we'll start with i think one of my favorites and one of the ones that i reference perhaps the most on this podcast and that's have a plan and understand your opponent has a plan too which i will attribute to lsv but i feel like this is the most common refrain. Yeah. And is this, would you say that this is from limited resources or is this from yeah, LSV it's, 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 limited resources or what do you think? Is well, this I a remember, phone call you had with LSV? Uh, uh, yeah. Me and LSV, me and L were hanging out. Down by at, the schoolyard. Yeah. We, we were hanging out at, I don't know, Denver Central Games or something like that. I don't know. Wizard's Chest, one of the other Denver LCGs. And he just looked at you, looked deep into your eyes and said, yeah. Shane, Shane, you must I have know a what plan. You need to hear. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, like what, Dave is, Dave is right in that it's larger than just just L, where it's you know the perhaps the most common statement or thought process of high level players I've seen and heard. I was doing some research for this episode and just finding you know if you want to find a lot of articles to read, just Google like ways to get better at magic, and you will see decades of content from 
very good players that are likely better than me, at least. And so I'll start with two quotes related to this. And uh, the first one's from LSV again, and it's good players play cards, great players play games. And this second one is from PV, and that's to be good at magic, you need to understand that your opponent is a rational actor and their plays make sense. To be great at magic, you need to take this further. You need to know that though you can't control what your opponent is thinking, you can give suggestions through the ways you play. And like I said, this topic, this concept is something I bring up a lot, and it's not something I'm expert at by any means, but I think it's something to continually keep in mind. It's having a plan, respecting that your opponent has a plan, that your opponent is thinking about the games, they're not just a a goldfish or a computer program plopping cards in front of you. This is really an essential foundation for winning games and matches of magic. And I think that's really easy to say, but then the nuance and how you execute on this mindset is the real challenge, right? And I think that's the one that takes a lifetime to improve on. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I sit down and play a game of Magic where I'm just kind of like, I'm going to look at my hand and then I'm going to play my cards and hope that it turns out right. You know, I, I, and when I'm not really thinking, when I'm tired, when I'm just like, oh, I want to play and have some fun. And then you realize halfway through a game, I really messed this up. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I cast that card too early. I misevaluated the threat they were presenting and didn't use my removal right. I didn't, you know, the card in hand matched up against what they played to the board and I didn't need to spend that spell, all that kind of stuff, right? I fetched the wrong way. It's <laughs> the number one thing in modern, right? I fetched the wrong way. I took two extra damage I didn't need to, that kind of stuff. I think this is a great one to start on, Shane. Sure. And then I'll I'll paraphrase another thing I read from PV, and that's the best players treat the whole match as a match and not like the sequence of turns. They have a plan. They adjust that plan depending on the game state, the board state. Every action they make furthers that goal from deck building to mulliganing to sideboarding. I think that is kind of the key one there for me. If you know your plan, you know what it, it was important, and then you know what you should prioritize. And what statements like this say to me is that continually thinking about your priorities, your game plan, trying not to deviate from that core plan is really important. And then this gets back to all kinds of discussions that we, and of course, countless others have had about things like mulliganing. Like I remember Stan saying stuff like this just in our a recent, like seven ways to get better at magic episode, you know, post board, a decent seven card hand might be tempting to keep, but like, You have to assess it through the lens of the matchup and your opponent's game plan and your potential game plan. And so that might mean that you're going to be mulling down to a six-card hand, but that's actually a stronger game plan for winning that game. Question. Yeah. What do you do to adjust or, or even manage this mentality if you feel like you're playing a deck that is wildly unfavored against your opponent so let's say you're on tron and your opponent is on infect and they're going to win 75 percent of the times i think that it's interesting to start there because that's like the i think that's the easiest way to to manage this whole thing right that this type of scenario where you're such a a an unfavored such an in such an unfavored position because i think you know pretty quickly what cards you have in your hand that are any good against the deck that you're going up against if you're in that bad of shape right like you, you need, need creature dismember, right? Your, you need dismember exactly. Yeah, and th- I think that's yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go too. Which is like that is kind of one of the more straightforward ones because like yeah, if you have five pieces of removal overall, 
you're going to need as many of them as possible. And then if you are making Tron as you're doing that, more power to you. And I, I think, but but more largely, like even bigger than kind of the Tron thing, right, is I think that... They don't get bigger that, than Tron, Shane. That, <laughs> that thought process happens even before your sideboarding and mulliganing in that game, right? Like you're thinking about that in your deck construction, which is like, what's the metagame around me? What matchups do I know I'm bad against? Have I tried to shore up those matchups with certain cards that I have in my 75? And we'll talk about that later on, I think. Is And that's all the kind of stuff that if you, you're not thinking about that in a very compartmentalized way, right? Or you shouldn't be, I think, which is like, okay, I have these 15 cards that uh, hopefully you know what they do, which is kind of a really important thing for sideboarding is know why you have them in your sideboard and then know what cards you don't have any use for. And then what cards you hope to be drawing to try to, you know, address your opponent's game plan. And I think that that is the kind of thing where it's, it's, it's really big picture thinking. And that's why it's so challenging It's because your plan is larger than the game plan. It's the match plan and the matchup plan and the meta plan. Do you guys apply this thinking when you're net decking? I think that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Is like you can, it's, I'm tempted and everyone's tempted, I think, to take a list that's winning and be like, okay, uh, I'm just going to run this out and use these sideboard cards as best I can think. And I think that's like a huge loss of percentage points in my games where it's like, I think if you really want to be prepared for a, from everything from an FNM to a, a GP is I have a really good understanding of why every card's in your deck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think we're, we're focusing it, it, a little bit quickly on like sideboarding when it's super important, <laughs> but I think that the, the real thing here is you got to know why the cards that are in your deck are, are there and what they're for. And not only that, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. It's also understanding like what the backup use for the cards that are in your deck are too. And um, I do think that some of that starts with when you're net decking, you know, I think that it, it helps with to understand what level of complexity of plan you can manage as a player and help select decks around around that as well, or what you're feeling up for in a given point of time, like a tournament that's coming up or or whatever. You know, I think when you think about practical ways to apply this idea. How how do I have a plan, right? Like I think I do think it starts with deck selection to to an extent. Yeah. What about you, Stan? Well, so I do do this from time to time, and I feel like in the past I've been chastised for it a little bit because I will pull a deck that's done well, whether it's a deck I like or something I'm trying out, and for one reason or another I will switch up like a handful of cards, maybe because I feel like it needs an extra land, maybe it's because I think there's some gaps in the sideboard, and without naming names, like I've been told by people like, Stan, this deck has done well. Why are you immediately changing it? And I- That's 100% me. I've said that. And so, <laughs> you know, among the reasons why I changed it is A, because I want to apply my own judgments, but also like sometimes it's unclear to me what certain cards are for. And it's easier to slot in something that I think this deck needs to be able to deal with rather than like going through the motions in an attempt to like, try to learn what a card is for and and get it wrong or like never bring it in post board or like cast in the wrong sequence in game one, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. I, I also think that the inverse case is fair too, where you say, if you're going to try to net deck, 
you know, we all net deck. What are we? What are we kidding? Like it's 2022. Everybody, that's where magic is. When you're taking a new list, yeah, (laughs) we we are a podcast for casual (laughs) net deckers. That's what we are. Um, Magic, yeah. I think that the inverse of it is also true, though, Stan. Is that some people? I, I do think rather you should have base decisions to change things off of a sample size greater than zero is where mm. I, I would start personally. Now, if you're not buying that, I think it's fine to do it the other way. I think it's more just like keeping an eye out for taking out cards that are part of the engine or something like that, where you're like, oh, I took out this card that's totally for X and turns out, whoops, I really needed that. You know, But I do think that there's a lot of cards in different decks that kind of stand out where you're like, and they that have more specific uses than people think they do, right? Like mm-hmm, a card like mm-hmm. Brazen Borrower, for example, in a Cascade deck, right? Or, like it's or for Emrakul, a certain thing or Emrakul, right? Emrakul and like control and four color decks, like it is there for mirror matches or, or control matches. And it's like, right. if you don't necessarily know that, you just kind of don't know what to do with it. Right, exactly. And also I think that it can make you fire off pieces of specialized interaction in situations that you don't really need to when you're trying to learn a new deck. Anyway, this is getting like kind of deeper down into this, this whole thing. But I would love to ask one more time before we get off of this topic of having a plan. How, how do you have a plan? Like what are the things that you do to bring this into your game when you yeah. play or pick up a new deck or whatever? I think like level one, gets into funnily enough like a level up concept like a classic one like who's the beatdown from mike flores like way back in the 90s right like because you have to i think understanding like role assignment is really important in every card game you will ever play uh pretty much because it just has a big impact on your game plan like if you're going to be the aggressor or like more on the defensive defensive end of things like and that changes on the state of the game and you know, how you're going to sideboard and how you're going to approach the entire game and match. Like, that's kind of like what I typically try to do early on is like, Hey, do I need to be pressuring my opponent to not to give them less time or to pressure their life total? All those, you know, all the reasons that you would play a more aggressive deck, or do I need to try to stop what they're doing in some way, shape or form, and then just sort of turn the corner at some point and, and outvalue them. That's sort of what I do first, most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then okay. And then beyond that, I think the next thing is trying to get familiar with what your opponent is trying to do and what they think, what are the key elements of their plan and how your deck matches up with the key elements of what they're trying to do, because that's going to be different from matchup to matchup. And that's a really surface way of saying it, because you can ha- we have an entire episodes about trying to talk about how a certain deck can, you know, get preyed on by other certain decks. But I do think that's the next thing is looking at the cards that you have that are interactive and really thinking about what are these for and what are the things that really stop me from doing what I want to do. Yeah. I think also part of it is having an idea, even if it's not the right idea, but coming up with an opinion on what your hand is supposed to look like and what you're going to do with the cards in hand when you decide mulligan decisions. You know, and these examples like looking at a opener that's two lands and a bunch of three drops and just kind of recognizing that this hand doesn't do anything. I can't really formulate a real plan around this, regardless of what my opponent is on. And sometimes making decisions about how you start the game just for the sake of having action on a curve or even something to build up to. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I find myself doing to improve like or noticing my mistakes and like why i lose games a lot recently is the timing 
of my spells where it's like the constant, the, the battle between like getting a few points of damage in early by let's like, say using a piece of removal that I honestly should be saving for later in the game when they have a more key card. Like you're playing, like I'm playing Rakdos Sacri- against Rakdos Sacrifice, right? And it's like, well, I can, I could, I have a scavenging use out. I could kill their cat and they have no way to get it back and I could eat it with a scavenging use. That seems really good. Like, let me, let me use this ram through or this like, or something like that and, and take care of that thing. And then they play like a mayhem devil the next turn and they they have other things that the mayhem devil is able to to take advantage of, and it's like, well, that wasn't really that good. Like in the end, like I probably had other ways to pressure that cat. I had other ways, and I didn't have other ways to pressure the mayhem devil. Yeah, and so like just like timing your important spells and timing the way that you interact with the key pieces of your opponent's deck is like, don't get anxious. I think is one of the big things for me is like, don't feel like you have to be using your cards all the time when your game plan is likely pretty good. If you can stop their, the key engine pieces of a deck like Raxac. Right. If you can stop the blank, whatever it is. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about sideboarding and of course, sideboarding is a big part of developing your game plan. But I think I wanted to focus on uh, a larger topic of sideboarding. And it's something that I think we've, talked about we've talked about sideboarding a ton right because it's such a huge part of this game and that's looking at your main deck and your sideboard as a collective 75 cards can i be honest with you guys about something yeah i don't feel like i've fully cracked this yet as a player i don't think a lot of people do i don't think i have yeah it's it's just i don't i don't think i have the the secret sauce to thinking about this philosophy in the right way even yeah i do think there are some decks that can do this and some decks that can't. Yeah, I would agree. This, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not every deck that you can sit down and go, I'm gonna bring in all my sideboard cards. Like it really depends on what what you're building. But um I think the key point here is just like Shane is saying, take a look at it as one giant unit and realize yeah. that there are some lists that have very few sacred cows that can't be taken out in some scenario. Yeah. Where I got this from is I think people like Brad Nelson have mentioned this on like Bash Bros podcast way back when. And I've seen some other articles. I remember where it's kind of like, I, I'm the, the writer was saying something like, I basically have pre sideboarded this card in based on my metagame assessment. And that allows me then to have a larger sideboard because like it's really never possible to have the perfect like stock 60. And then 15 other cards. Like, I think it's really tempting to see deck building in that way, where it's like, this is a 60 cards that executes my strategy as perfectly as I can game one. And then I have these 15 other cards that let me adapt that strategy for the matchup, or I'm going to hose their strategy, or I'm going to stop their hate card or something like that. I feel like what you're describing is something I've seen in modern lately, as I've paid attention to Merktide decks with just having a one of dress down or a one of unlicensed mm-hmm. curse in the main. Yeah. As an understanding of what the metagame is about. And and historically, I also think we see that sometimes with Tron in term in terms of like figuring out how we want to leverage Karn the Great Creator as a way to access the sideboard and like yeah. maybe increase consistency of certain cards, whether we need two or three or four O stones or worm coil engines in the main. Yeah. I mean Tron is a classic mm-hmm. example in in the eras where suddenly Thragtusk is main, 
in yes. some quantity in Tron, or right? Or like, well. Or, oh, I guess the meta's really aggressive now because Tron is playing Thragtusk main. Like, that that can be telling. And I do think that that's, that's part of the whole thing. You know, we were talking about Emrakul, the Promised End, being in the main decks of Four Color as well, and that's that's a similar move for sure. Yeah, I think you often see this, I think, in pretty much every deck, because every deck has flex spots, right? And, like, depending on the metagame, you're going to have different amounts of, like, small creature interaction or large creature interaction or, like, spell pierce is good now. Or there's, like, a different kind of main deck threat, like you mentioned, Dave, with Thrag Tusk. And Modern is just really big. Like, especially at the LGS and PTQ level even, like, you're going to have a lot of different decks that you're going to face down. And a 15-card sideboard alone is going to be impossible to kind of shore up as many matchups as you kind of want to. And so I think what you're really required to do, and I think a lot of good players look at their decks in this way, is like my 75 cards are this larger collection, this larger deck, and this larger game plan that allows me to have like a sound game one based on like a metagame prediction. And then you have all these sideboard cards that allow you to continue tailoring that game plan into games two and games three. And that's a really big level up for me and thinking about how magic matches actually play out and how we have to think about approaching a format as large as modern, because it's like, if these 15 cards aren't enough and they never are, how do I think about making my deck more flexible and able to handle a wider variety of threats if my, if my general game plan isn't strong enough uh, against them? Yeah. And I think what then happens like we can expand this a little bit into like looking at our sideboard like with the post sideboard 60 in mind this is something i've read a lot about as well which is like what's coming in what's coming out like and why am i making those decisions because that's the really hard part right yeah and actually one thing i was going to throw in here is i think pvddr said this too in a, in some writing about sideboarding at one point in time it, it stuck with me was don't start with thinking about the cards you want to sideboard in. Start with thinking with the mm-hmm. cards you want to sideboard out, which yep. I think is good. And I think you should really challenge yourself on that when you're playing. Because um, I've seen people pull off some really interesting things with, with sideboard uh, by, by thinking about what they could take out to take advantage. That did not make my list. I don't know if that made any of our lists for this episode in the notes, but that was a huge one for me. And I have eventually, more or less, with some exceptions, but more often than not, I've like come around and trained myself to do that habitually. Like I'm always just like, you know, moving the cursor over four cards at a time and just like just taking them out of the deck. And then sometimes I'll throw one in or like, depending on what my post board deck looks like, if I have a couple slots, I might bring in like a card or two that I've taken out if it's on the bubble, but yeah, that was, de- that was definitely and, a, a huge learning for me. And also, you know, not to get like too level two on on this kind of discussion, but think about how your opponents are going to sideboard. You know, I was playing when I was playing Boros Prowess one time uh, against Burn. Stan, you were at this tournament as well as so a store championship at Dojo. The player mm-hmm. I was playing against was a really good Burn player, uh, and she we were both sideboarding and. I sideboarded in a bunch of extra creature removal because I thought it would be helpful to to do. And after the match, she told me that she sideboarded a ton of her creatures out against me. 
because to make it so that the cards that she thought I was going to sideboard in wouldn't have any targets. And it totally worked. I drew a bunch of dead cards that I couldn't use, and then I just got proceeded to get burned out. And uh, well, well done. You know, it was definitely something to think about. Is like sometimes people will will level over you, and you should just keep in mind that um, you have to think about how their deck is going to change in game two, not just how yeah. you want to change your deck. Yeah, these these two first points, I think, mesh together really well, right? Which is like have a plan, respect that your opponent has a plan because they're going to also be altering their plan in games two and games three. And that's where kind of meta knowledge and deck construction knowledge really come into play for ensuring that your sideboard cards are going to have targets because there's in a, in a format as fast and as value heavy as modern, a dead card in hand is one of the th- worst things for you in terms of winning a game and winning a match. Like one of the things that like popped into my mind and, and Brad Nelson referenced this on Twitter was that he's like, I've, I'm so proud that my first pro tour deck had an extra land in the sideboard. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, and, and if you see a sideboard with like an extra land in it and you're like, well, that seems like a pretty weak use of a sideboard space. Like, couldn't I just have like another piece of hate or like I could have some sort of targeted artifact destruction or color hoser or something like that. That's going to have wider utility. Like if you're paying attention to the deck construction of people with extra lands in their sideboard, like these are the people you want to pay the most attention to because they've determined that that's going to do more for them than like some, some piece of tech that might have some utility in some game. But the, that's kind of the thing that I think if you're thinking about that in that fashion where it's like, Hey, this game, might go so long or the value of having an extra land and not missing my land drop. And like, let's say a mid range or control mirror where you can use your mana really well. And over a long period of time or missing a land drop is so detrimental that you're going to lose the, the race and the mid to late game. Like that's the kind of stuff that is, is really hard to, to keep thinking about. And when it's, it's important to pay attention to those kind of tr- tactics. Sometimes I, feel like the people who do that with an extra land on the board have very specific sideboard strategies against other specific decks. And and maybe, did you say it was Brad who tweeted this? Yes. Brad Nelson? Yeah. So I, I don't know if that means Brad Nelson like showed up with a little slip of paper where he wrote his sideboard guide for the top five decks in the tournament. But. 100% sure he did. <laughs> I, I suspect that Brad has that in his head at this point. But I feel like when you do that with a land in particular, um, and other cards, of course, but lands being the topic of discussion here, it's because you know that in a certain matchup, you're taking out four cards, you have three other cards to bring in, and then you could bring in this fourth land for like a, a little resource edge. Or, or you're raising your curve or something. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's about raising your curve. I mean, I, I the, given our discussion, I kind of feel like this is... This is like a pre-sideboarded situation in a lot of times where it's like, okay, I'm si- I'm setting up my deck so the curve is lower because the meta is more, you know, more aggressive. So I'm gonna have less lands and more action to try to get more stuff. And then if I have to play a slower game, like Shane was saying, then I'll bring the land in to help me make sure that I hit my land drops when, when my roll changes, basically. Yeah. So a uh, long story short, I want to get onto your all's level ups and things like that. I think that the less often you think about like hating out your opponent with like some tech piece and more about like how the post-sided boring games are actually going to play out, the stronger your decks are going to be. And that goes, that folds neatly in with kind of the, the first point of understand plan 
your plan and the in the opponent's game plan. And I think those two things are kind of the, the biggest one-two punch and leveling up for me because they fold so neatly together and they're both required to execute a game plan. Yeah. Nice. But Stanislav. Yeah. I, I Yours got, got, I like yours because they're like this awesome com- combination of, of leveling up and like mindset even more like personal mindset and, and, and satisfaction with gameplay and things like that. So uh, let's talk about your first one. Sure. So my little section of leveling up is called Mulligan's Math and the Best Decks for Me, a memoir by Stanislav. I'd buy it. Is it an audiobook? Yeah. Is it narrated by you? No. It's uh-huh. narrated by me, actually. Yeah. With my guitar. <laughs> I, oh God, I'm so glad you didn't play it. Dave boom, looked, boom, boom, looked boom, around boom, boom, and... and I could see the glimmer in his eye. He was thinking about, should I drop some, some base licks? I'm glad you didn't, though. In, in all three cases, I can think of the specific people who got me thinking about these things. And just because of the way my stupid brain works, these are things that live rent-free in my mind and I think about constantly. Dude, your brain is a freaking steel trap. Like you <laughs> reference things that I said like three years ago, not in terms of leveling you up, just in terms of things that like you're like, Shane, you're contradicting yourself. And three years ago, I'm like, damn it, Stan, I don't need the receipts. <laughs> yeah. Shane, you said season one of the magicians was good. <laughs> Never. I wasted 12 hours of my Saturday morning on your bogus recommendation. Um, yeah, I guess it is a steel trap for like the most inconsequential crap and yet here we are making an episode out of it so the first one is something that our former co-host Zach Colhan said on a deck dive we did on blue white control like post-war of the spark mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I remember that was an early one is this the one where I wrote the like love letter to card advantage at the beginning yes, I believe, I believe, it, believe, is. So. I believe yeah. it is I believe it is in fact I vaguely recall this being either an episode we did right around um, GP Denver that we all travel to. It was either right before or right after because you were still playing Blue White Control, you know, on Shane's floor. And we were talking about good cards in the mirror and how important Dovin's Veto and Teferi Time Reveler are for mirror matches. And Zach basically said, those cards are so critical for winning the mirror that you have to be willing to mulligan to five just to see them. And although this isn't a point about blue-white control mulligans in particular, it did sort of help me realize that it's important to recognize when, why, and how to mulligan for overall success. So understanding what cards matter in specific matchups, whether it's because of certain counterplay, having like hate pieces or silver bullets against what my opponent is doing, or because I have really important tools that I need to lean on, you know, something like, Leaning on Ragavan against Four Color is something Ari Lax had mentioned recently in, in uh, Dominaria's Judgment. It's not because Ragavan is supremely good against Four Color. It's just because it's such a bad matchup for the Merc-type player that you need to have like that early threat that you back up if you want any chance of winning that one. Yeah. And, and likewise, I think it's sometimes easy to recognize hands that don't do anything. You know, I, I mentioned earlier two lands and a bunch of three drops. Like That's an easy mull. But it's also harder to establish the discipline to pitch hands that do do something, even though that something isn't going to win you a game. Yeah. The way I think about this sometimes is mulliganing is probably the most important decision you have to make in a game of Magic. 
especially the way the mulligan rules work today. Yeah. Whether to mulligan or not to mulligan, the fact that you you know you get to have another look and all that kind of stuff, like mulliganing is so important and so powerful now that you have to take it really seriously. You have to really interrogate your mulligan decisions and have it be a big part of the plan that you're executing. Who are you working for, Mulligan? Mulligan works for me. A related quote on this subject is something Collins Mullen said back when he was co-host on the Grindcast. I don't remember the exact wording because he said it in an episode two years ago. But he was talking about looking at a hand and, and, and realizing to himself that this is a hand he can lose with, even though <laughs> it has action. And, you know, that's one of those little maxims that I try to apply when thinking about, you know, hands that just have lands and spells. Yes, it may have a curve. And, and especially post-board, like, sometimes it may be tempting to keep a hand that looks like a great hand game one, but isn't necessarily leveraging the tools that you may need post-board. And I think applying that thinking to mulligans has just made me a slightly stronger player. And, and kind of understanding that, especially in modern when cards are so good and can sometimes like two for one or more going down to six or even going to five, isn't necessarily the same death sentence that it used to be, especially in a world of London Mulligan where you can actually sculpt a pretty strong plan and a reasonable hand because you're still looking at seven every time you're pitching it back. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. All right. My next lesson learned is from friend of the show, Dom Harvey which is something he said to me in a coaching session once. So it's not really a quote, but it's the spirit of a lesson, which was, let's do the math. And he said it in a very specific match we were playing that I may have even talked about in a previous episode, but I'm going to revisit this anecdote. I was playing Mono Red Prowess. This is right after Chandra Dressed to Kill came out, and we started seeing some success with these you know, Chandra Prowess decks. And I was paired up against Tron, which I think most people would consider a favorable matchup for the mono-red player. Mm -hmm. But I was playing this particular matchup like it was a tempo deck. Rather than going all in on aggro, I wanted to like have some threats on the board, maybe keep some threats back so I can maybe leverage spells in hand. Or what I was also doing was trying to play against Oblivion Stone in particular. I was really worried about overcommitting to the board and then opponent drawing a, an O-Stone and just kind of setting me back and me not having the gas needed to close out what should otherwise be a winnable match. Yep. And while we were going through this match, Dom essentially demonstrated how known information on the board could translate to the opponent's possible sequence of turns, which were then calculated to estimate my damage output based on my resources. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, in this particular case, we found that playing around O-Stone was the losing line as opposed to playing into it, forcing my opponent to have it or, or lose. Or in this case, even if they had it, they probably were going to lose just because of how much damage I could present on subsequent turns if I had committed to the board as quickly as possible. And also because they played a forest on turn two. That's always the tell, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, that actually may have happened, yes. Maybe they had life goes on, Dave, and they were about to gain eight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this this kind of gets to like a core strategy, right? Which is like, so if they have an if they have three or four O stones in their deck or something like that, and the chance of them having one is is X percent, but the chance of you having lethal damage in hand and on the board is a hundred percent. 
Mm-hmm. If they don't have it. Yeah. And I think that this point is even less about probabilistic thinking and more about plotting out the time intervals that magic gives you and realizing that those yeah. things are finite, in, right? Like the number of turns someone can do, the number of lands that they can play, those are things that you can think ahead in a lot of different matchups, at least for the first like three, four, five turns of the game. So if you really have the pedal to the metal, or you're really trying to close out a game, you should stop and go like, hey, I can plot this out. What can they do? If and, and take a look at... And a lot of it has to do with what mana they have available, what colors of mana they have available, what it's going to take them to get extra ones available so that they can play whatever it is. O-Stone and activate it. Supreme Verdict, we have double white available. You know, like double red for anger of the gods, like all those things that like, depending on how complicated your opponent's deck is, they may secretly like not have access to the thing that you're worried that they have access to. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I think I can see my opponent doing this on arena because of the cards that get highlighted briefly. Oh yeah. And, and usually those are the games that tend to go a little longer and I'm just kind of like sitting there waiting to figure out what my opponent is going to do. And then just like, random cards and random lands just get like highlighted ever so briefly. And, I, and and maybe not, maybe I'm giving my opponent more credit than they deserve, but I I do think to some extent, like the players who have the patience to kind of plowed out everything that's on the board, all the known information, think about the actual resources they have or opponents have with their lands is in some cases them actually doing the math and wondering if I'd commit to X, Y, or Z, how quickly can I assemble a winning line versus my opponent's plan, which they're capable of doing X, Y, or Z based on the cards that they're demonstrating or the lands that they have. Yeah, I would almost build on this point to go like, a lot of people spend too much time focusing on cards in hand, like cards Mm -hmm. in hand and cards in deck, and not enough time focusing on lands lands in the board and turns in the game that we're at right now. And I think that, that you should definitely use the information of your opponent's hand or their cards or whatever, because it's a huge part of the game, but there's lots of other places to get information there. You know, in pioneer, sometimes it's how many cards are in their graveyard, you know, in, in modern, it's how many, how many fetch lands are they, are they working with right now? Like, what are they trying to do? What can they actually have access to from this fetch that they have? Did they already get what you think is their one of sacred foundry? So they can't easily fetch up another untapped red source for some reason, like something, there's lots of things like that, that you can kind of, weasel your way through if you start paying attention to lands on the board as well. Just today I lost a game because I didn't pay attention to or or I guess forgot that my blue-white control opponent had a Castle Arden Veil. And I spent all these resources clearing the board so I could go for an attack and then they just made a 1-1 and <laughs> bought themselves a, a, a turn and I was like, well, I guess I'm locked out because I didn't account for the fact that they had this untapped land. I lost a 45-minute arena match, which is like my least possible way Death. of enjoying yeah. spending time, uh, because I activated my creature land before uh, just removing the creature on the other side. Mm-hmm. And when I removed the creature on the other side, it was a devil that dealt one damage to my creature land. That was a 1-1. One, one. That then enabled me to uh, not kill both the Obnixiluses on the other side, which then allowed them to come back and take over the game. So just like, you know, just doing that. Like if I had just removed the devil before activating my creature land, the, the entire game is different and I likely win the 45-minute match. Just want to throw that one out there. Hey, 
you know what? I'm glad you did. It's like so critical to recognize those mistakes, especially when you feel bad for losing a long match, because I think those are like the little sequencing level ups that you have to accrue over a career in magic to make you play sharper when it counts later on. Yeah, that kind of, that was 45 minutes of time. It was your what? life draining away. <laughs> oh God. I, it's so finite at this point, Dave. Shane, you, those could have been billable hours. Um, <laughs> What These are all billable a- hours, aren't they? I, I put them in the tracker. Oh, I bill it to admin. <laughs> um, what was was it? Lair of the Hydra. What was a one one? Yeah, it was a Lair of the Hydra. I had enough. I had enough mana for a ram through on my scoos and to activate <laughs> and to activate my uh, my Lair of the Hydra, and then I lost instead. I like that Shane has referred to this match several times already with the card. <laughs> I'm so that I, mad about I, it. I have no idea. Can I just be honest? I have no idea what ran through does. What what is ran through? It's, it's basically a it's, it's a one. It's a no. It's it's a one in a green deal damage card. And if you have trample, it deals a damage to the opponent. That's uh-huh. instant, which is important. I see. I see. <laughs> they just keep trying to make this mechanic constructed playable. Okay. Last last point that I want to get to in, in my journey of leveling up. This is something that Dave Harbarger said, also on an episode of The Dive Down. I, I don't know which one, though. You said it in passing, and I've never forgotten it, and I, and I think I cite it all the time now. It was something to the tune of, the best deck in the format isn't necessarily the best deck for you. Oh my god, Stan, you do listen to me sometimes. Sometimes. I have to block out a lot of noise, let me tell you. <laughs> Guitar playing. Yeah. Look, fun as it is to try new decks for science or my hit Magic the Gathering podcast, there's also nothing fun for me about forcing myself to play with tier one decks because of their perceived power level. And understanding that equity that deck enjoyment can have, though it is hard to quantify, I think it's possible to consider. And and we can try to break it down and, and maybe talk about, about it amongst friends. You know, in this scenario, let's say I loved playing four-color Omnath decks. And maybe if that were the case, I could improve my win rate by mastering them. But the fact is, I don't love playing these decks. I don't know if very many people love playing these decks from what I'm seeing on the internet. If you believe Twitter, no one does, yeah. And maybe if I powered through my feelings and played them anyway, I could achieve a higher win rate than if I played the next next best deck, for instance. But I think this, like approach doesn't account for the percentage points lost due to things like mental fatigue or just the anguish of having to manage a four-color board state and game plan. Yeah, I mean, Magic's a game. We've talked about this somewhat recently, which is just like, this is this is still a game. You should enjoy your time playing it. I mean, if, yes. if you're somehow fortunate enough to like make your living off of like grinding MTGO tickets, like sweet, but at the, at the end of the day, we're playing a game. You and I. Yeah, and I wish we played against each other more often, Shane. Here's another thing. If we agree with the premise that I'm likely to win more games with four color than the next best deck, I also think it's important to account for the hard to measure quantities of playing a deck that you enjoy, such as stamina, shortcuts that you've developed because you've played a deck enough times out of that love for it, understanding outs because you have, you know, muscle memory for all the cards in your deck and what they can do in given situations. And and to that end, recognizing lines that may be unintuitive to beginners of a certain deck. Likewise, as we mentioned, sideboarding and mulligan decisions. I think these are things that improve the more you play a deck. And of course, the overall enjoyment of solving the unique and specific problems that piloting a certain deck might present. 
you know, some people love weaseling their way out of situations with a combo deck. Other people love weaseling their way out of situations with mid-range or control strategies. And knowing which things you like to weasel your way out of with, try to try to follow that logic, is really critical to to long-term success and I think overall satisfaction while playing games that might not have satisfying results. Yeah, I think knowing what kind of weasel you are is super important in Magic. You know, and I think Put that, that on a pin. Right, exactly. I know what kind of weasel I am. The dive down. Um, it's really important because I think that you know you talked about like stamina and like getting tired of it, but I think that there's there's a real value in just going. I'm just not. I don't play enough right now to be good with this kind of deck, or I I don't. I'm never going to be good at playing this kind of deck because I don't like doing the math problems that come with Storm mm-hmm. or Adnaz or something like that. And what I really prefer is to play Burn or I really like interacting. So for me, it's best to play with a deck that has Thoughtseize in it because I like to have that information about my opponent's hand and I like to kind of dirtle around and be mid-range. Like, I think it's okay to be that thing. There are plenty of people who have a lot of success being archetype specialists in Magic. We see it all the time on, on Magic Online. If that's even your aspiration to be you know, super good and win a challenge or whatever, you know, master a deck like Demonic Tutors has with, with Yawgmoth or something, you know, that's the example that sprung to mind for some reason. But, you know, I do think that it's like, you got to have fun and also you should build on your strengths. I think most, most of the time when you're trying to acquire, get better at a thing, you should build on your strengths instead of trying to spread out your resource investment on things that you're lagging behind on once you get to a certain point anyway. Yeah, I do think that at some point there is value. I remember Stan, you mentioned this a few episodes ago, which is like understanding, playing the game from your opponent's side and understanding your opponent's side of the game plan. And I think at some point, like if you're trying to be quite good, you probably want to play a bunch of games with like four color Omnath or something like that. So you know the cards, you know the sequencing, you have an idea of what cards you want to be avoiding on the other side of things. And so... that's really valuable but it's i think there are other things that take priority over that that's like kind of you know a a next next level type thing and you have to get to the point where you are experienced enough with a deck that you probably enjoy more and are sort of naturally better at and have more experience with the type of gameplay that that can present and the type of advantage it is trying to to gather over the course of a game i and look just to close it out the reason i bring this example up is because I find it kind of refreshing and knowing the decks I'd rather be playing with sometimes just makes losing that much easier. Yeah. It, it, of course, it also makes winning more fun, but I think it's also important to like know how to manage those expectations. And, you know, in some cases, it'll even make me play a format less because I know that the thing I really like to do isn't a viable option. Stan, I knew you were going to take my words and twist them to something that I'm annoyed with you about. But fair point. You know what I mean? So it's like, maybe if there was nothing for me to play in Modern, I would play more Pio. Or if there's nothing for me to play in Constructed, I would play more Limited. And, you know, us being in positions where we can kind of jump around a little bit, I think it also makes it easier to sort of pursue those things you really like rather than forcing yourself to do something that, you know, the hive mind says is tier one, but... You know, it's just like a hyperlinear graveyard combo that as soon as people bring in rest in peace, you're done. Good game. Good game. GG's. So, okay, I think these are good, like, 
greatest hits of magic level ups. Why don't we move on to some life and magic level ups or sort of magic and life level ups and kind of see where it goes from here. Yeah. I have a couple I want to talk about. Um, both of mine are from the same place, but why don't we dive into the first one? So the first thing that I thought of when we talked about this episode, putting together this episode and these Twitter threads was something I heard a very, very long time ago on Limited Resources podcast, thanks to Marshall Sutcliffe and Ryan Spain. The second time that, we'll be that we talked about Limited Resources tonight, there's going to be more. And that is the concept of being Roddy. I'm so glad you mentioned this, Dave. Like, Who this is, is familiar with what that means? This is so core. I yes. am. Yes. Stan. Stan, are you? do you know I, what Roddy means? Oh, I know what it means, but I hate it. <laughs> you hate it. I can't wait to talk about this then. Yes. So let's talk about it. Yes. So what Roddy means is do not be results-oriented in your thinking. R-O-T, results-oriented thinking. So the first... Not the first time they heard about this, but there's a uh, an episode where they talk about it on Limited Resources. It is Limited Resources episode 57 from November 5th, 2010. Are they in the they 600s about, now? Yes, they're in the 600s oh, now. They talked about this earlier. I listened to this episode last night, by the way, for old time's sake. I remember this being transformative in my life for other reasons that we'll get to a little bit later. But they spent some time talking about Roddy on this episode as well. This is an episode so old that it features the mention of well-known player Jacob Wilson as a 15-year-old person who had top-aided a limited Grand Prix and had written into the show. He's now in his 60s, as we all as well know. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about what, what Roddy means, because I think it does still confuse people. So Shane, what's it mean? What does results-oriented thinking mean? So basically, I'm not even going to look at your notes, Dave, because you can you can uh, you can correct me later. Basically, don't look as don't look at the outcome. Look at the process that drove the outcome, because the outcome can be good with a bad process, and the out the out the output can be bad with a good process. Right. Exact. That's exactly it. You know, you should be basing your appraisal on the things that happen in games. And honestly, I've taken this into my life as much as I can on a, on a thing that Ryan and, and Marshall talk about in the episode. They call it like decisions, not results. It's about decisions, not the results. Because you have to recognize that in, in games in particular, and in life in general, a lot of times, there are things that are in your life that are come down to randomness that you do not have control over. And so the only thing you can do is make good decisions based off of the information you have, trying to maximize the, the chances of the outcome that you want to have happen, and then accept that whatever happens as a result of it is what happens. Now, love to see what Stan... Stan, do you, is this where you have a problem with this idea? No. Is this, does this shed any light on this idea to you? Or just, why no, don't this you is like sound. this? This, this yeah. is perfectly sound. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I think that what a lot of this is really is, you know, it's about having good probabilistic thinking. It's tied to lots of other fallacies that people have, like the gambler's fallacy, you know, where people go, oh, I'm, you know, this hasn't happened. So I'm due because this hasn't happened, which is not something that, you know, basically the idea that individual moments of randomness are actually tied together when they're not. Now in magic, sometimes they are because the what's in your deck changes so the odds do change a little bit but your odds don't increase just because you flipped a coin you know you're not more likely to get heads the next time because you flipped a, a heads the last time one of the best 
examples I saw of this. Ryan uses this example on, on the podcast, so I thought I would just bring it here. He says, let's say I offer you a bet for even money uh, on a roll of, of a D10, okay? You put up 50 bucks, I put up 50 bucks. And I say to you, you get to choose which, which one of these things, win conditions you want, either the number one or the numbers two through 10. Which, which would you choose? Shane? <laughs> you choose a two through 10. Right. Same. So, so now if I roll the dice and the one comes up and I win the money, does that mean that you made a bad decision? No. Even, even more subtle. I mean, if, if it was one through four and five through 10, like you're, you're still taking the five through 10. It's more numbers. Right. And there are so many things I think that, that come, come out to this. Um, Stan, have we gotten to the point that you hate yet? No. No. Okay. Not yet. No, this is, this is all super sound. Okay. Good advice. Perfect. Thank you for sharing. So I think that the way that I translate this into my life, though, which I think is something that is a little bit maybe weirder for people because like life isn't a game, right? Like, but the way that I do think about things is I try to, it, I usually think about it a lot with like resource allocation or when I'm working, what kind of effort I can put into different things. A lot of it becomes about trying to align the resources that I have, like time, my energy, my, my thoughts, my creativity with the things that I think are going to bear the best chance of bearing a successful outcome, right? And so in work, a lot of times for me, that means the outcome where I have a project where I'm happy with the creative output of it and my client is also happy with the creative output of it, like the maximization of those overlap of those two things. And so when, we're, when I'm brainstorming with a group or when I'm talking about you know, things like that, I, I try to have us figure out a way to plot out the, the creative ideas that we bring to the table in a way where, where we have the most chance of that happening because we only have a finite amount of time. You know, there's always people who have these great like ideas that are kind of like super far out. Let's see, maybe the client hates it, maybe they love it. And I think that you can put a certain amount of effort into that kind of stuff because those are like moonshots and they're worth taking. But I always want to make sure I have that kind of backup. So I've really taken this Roddy thing to kind of like a heuristic of risk assessment for me because it's twofold. One is I want to make sure that I'm putting the most money on the best bets. But the other thing is I want to, I want to make sure that I'm just have a backup plan too. So that if the thing that I've put all my eggs into doesn't work out, I make sure that I have another way to, that I can go in the moment to make sure that we still get to some kind of success. And so it's a little bit of a stretch for Roddy. I think <laughs> that that is kind of like where this concept has led me as far as my life, my life goes and just thinking about results oriented thinking in that context. Because sometimes like life rolls you the one, right? Like, mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. so you just having, having sound process will mean that you take advantage of the two through tens more often, right? Like just like yeah. being in, being set up for success and having the, the, the mindset and the approach where it's like, I'm going to give myself more two through tens rather than kind of shoot for the one. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge part of it. But what I also kind of like the thing I've built on it as far as my life goes is I want to make sure I know what's going to happen when the bad outcome comes up and I'm prepared for it as well, because sometimes you do get the one and sometimes you do have a bad process, even though you had a, or you have a bad outcome, even though you had a good process. And so I want to put a little bit of effort into making sure I know what I'm going to do if that happens. Now, again, this is professional life stuff. This isn't talking about like life tragedy, but this is like, wow, uh, 
client said something to me that suddenly made me think, oh my gosh, this whole thing could possibly potentially go a completely direct, different direction. How do I prepare myself and my team for that possibility in a way that doesn't freak everybody out? Like that, that's the kind of stuff that I think is worth, worthwhile doing in this context or thinking about a little bit too. And then also scaling the effort to make sure that we don't like over-index. So I, I will say, I think these examples are better than the gambler's fallacy or the dice thing. Because the dice one is strictly chance and, you know, you managing your work output is is more within your control. Right. The thing that I will sometimes struggle with is where don't be roddy kind of intersects with this notion of correlation is, is not causation. Okay. Where, for instance, you might make bad decisions to still win. Your bad decisions didn't necessarily correlate to the, or didn't necessarily cause the win. Right. There may be a correlation there in that right. both these things happen, but it's not that one led to the other. Right. What I sh- really struggle with is when people use that as a cop-out cop rather than like taking into account that sometimes whether people's decisions may seem wrong, they were made for a reason, you know? And like your opponent is doing things in their best interest. And though it may seem unintuitive, like maybe they had certain information that you didn't. Or maybe you had a specific read on something that led you to make this like really questionable decision or play that nine out of ten times would be a bad sequence or a bad plan, but you pulled it off and someone looking over your shoulder would be like, that was a stupid plan. And you say, well, it worked for me and I won and I knew that it would work. And they'll be like, well... You know, don't don't be results oriented thinking you should never do something like that. Oh, well, but wait, but wait. I, I think it's a great point. What you're saying though is is that yeah, I think that it's being unfairly applied to a situation where you had a plan based mm-hmm. off of what you thought was the right thing. Now I think you could sit down and go, like, look, what were really the chances of that working out? You could sit down and and really try to like pick it apart yeah. based on cards you were gonna draw, the likelihood that they were to have the card that they that you said, all that kind of stuff. Like I think that that's that is part of what Marshall and, and Ryan on the show called negative rot, which is basically a reverse rot is what they called it on there, which is basically developing habits when you... So a lot of people get rotty where they blame losses on, not on decisions that they made, right? They blame losses on chance too much when really they made a bad decision. The yes. reverse rot is when you take too much credit for a win, when you really should sit down and go, okay, I played this really fancy line did it really make a difference? I won. Like I, I think it's fine to try stuff, but I do think it's it's just as good and just as interesting, I think, afterwards to sit down and go, okay, I did this thing. It was kind of wild. It worked. <laughs> do I honestly think that that, w- yeah. that was the thing? And I think that that's part of the, for me, that's part of the fun of the game, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, Stan, your, your issue is almost with the game of Magic where it's like you can't always know what the best decision is. And that people's decision assessment process is is not quite what it needs to be. No, Stan's not That's to not, put words in your mouth. Yeah. I think that Stan's Stan's problem is with people coming up to him and going, "You didn't think about the deci- the decision you made enough. I'm glad <laughs> yeah. it worked out for you, but that was dumb." Like that's <laughs> yeah. what it sounded like to me. So yes. are, we, are we going back? Yeah. Are we going back to you siding out your rhinos or your cascade spells? And like, well, it if, didn't work out. If if you so, had one. Then, no, that that one did not work out. So, yeah. I I did. 
I, I think I applied results more into thinking correctly there where I lost and I decided to never do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I get what you're saying. Like, I think people people bandy this like a baseball bat yes. sometimes. But it doesn't change the corporate, the, the fact that this is a, an important thing and I think a valuable, like, method of of thinking for making decisions generally. Yeah, I think it's it's just hard as a magic as magic players to like un, like balance like fancy play syndrome with being results oriented. It's just like because there's so many cause and effects, right? I also think people that get super into being like results oriented thinking, results oriented thinking can be people who tend to be kind of dogmatic when really what you need to do is let be like listen i understand but i'm experimenting right now like and it's fine to experiment i will think about whether the, my decisions really made a difference or not or led to a positive outcome or not later but there's a lot of people who just go at ah, it's not the a line play forget it yeah here's one of my other issues with with this notion which it was just like just to reiterate like i think a lot of the things you said were correct and sound but i almost think that it's bad branding because sometimes results are points of data that we have to leverage a game of imperfect information. And when people, you know, cite don't be rotty, it's almost like they're discrediting like one of the few things that you have access to, to determine whether you made good decisions or not. I totally agree that this is a terrible name for this. I, I really do. I've been thinking about this a lot today. And actually, <laughs> they talked about it on that on episode 57 of, of Limited Resources even. They talk about how Mike Flores and they got into like a discussion where Mike was basically like, so I just shouldn't ever care if I win. So if you want to hear them talk about what they're... That, that's not what this is. And so I do think it's a problem with the word results. Yes. And it's a very... It really should be called like sound probabilistic thinking or decisions decisions not results is kind of like a better branding i think for this where it's really about that idea again of it's not about discounting the results that happened it's about really asking yourself the question of where did that result come from yeah mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what were the decisions that i made part of that did i screw up and still win anyway or did I play perfectly and still lose? Like that's what's important here. It's not. It's not. And that. And it's also supposed to help you just be like mentally above like the variance that's in magic or things like that, or just rolling with the punches when you can feel like, oh, my process is me improving. I'm getting tighter. And there's more nuance to a result than a win or a loss, and that's really what we're talking about here, right? Where it's like that is one data point, which is like the result of the game or the result of the match. But I think what's what you're getting at, Dave, and I'm sure they got on on the episode is like the result is really like how you got there, and if you're able to assess the entire game from start to mid game to end as as well as you can, I think you can look at that in like a holistic way and be like, even though I won, what was the actual result of this? Like, did I did I draw my one outer? Did like you know did my opponent screw up and I got the win? So there's just a lot of ways I think you can assess what a result even is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the the point here and we'll move on to the next point after this is it's bad branding. It really is. <laughs> it's bad. it should be it's sh like everything that you said is true Stan and makes people who are really into result roddy discussion makes them insufferable to, insufferable to be around but doesn't make the core principle less sound. It just means you shouldn't go up to people and kind of be like I'm really smart. I know what roddy means. Like Let's not. Let's all not do that. 
I feel like but I've done this. I feel like Stan is like is thinking about all the times that I've like ribbed him about something, and it's just coming out now. I'm, I apologize, Stan. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily thinking about you. Necessarily but... thinking about me. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't exclusively thinking about you. Let me put it that way. <laughs> So you know that we are brought to you in part by our friend Will over at Barrister and Man, maker of fine soaps, scents, fragrances, all those good things. And what we wanted to talk to you about are some new releases that are coming out uh, and perhaps just came out because I think they sound dope and I kind of want to buy some for myself. Have you guys seen these? I have not yet. Give me a tour. All right. It's the Mayhem, right? The Electric Mayhem. Which is a it's a limited edition release inspired by Electro Swing and given a custom playlist. Uh, it's I think it was com- they commissioned Sean Maher, who uh, I guess is in Chantillon Lux or Maher Olfactive fame, and it was cre- the fragrance was created by Sean, inspired by Will's favorite one of Will's favorite musical genres, Electro Swing, uh, which is in <laughs> shaving soap, aftershave, aftershave balm, and eau de toilettes. So, I mean, yeah, it sounds sounds sweet. I mean, it says, Will says, I can't wait to smell it. So, I don't even know if he knows what it smells like. He's made it. I don't maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe maybe he has to let it sit for like two weeks to settle in. Wow. And then he, then he opens it up and he really smells it. Amazing. There's another new seasonal fragrance out called Arctique. And as far as I know, this might be the first Bear Sherman product with an actual caution label. <laughs> Be careful, y'all. This one is extremely cold. Lots of menthol and peppermint. Very minty. You're going to want to keep this one away from your eyes and anything else that you prefer not to freeze. Apparently, people are into this. Will was telling me that like people clamor for like these heavy, like minty, peppermint, menthol-y type things. Yeah, this one's available as a shaving soap as well as an aftershave splash. Chill out this summer with some Arctique. And I have one thing. Oh yeah. In my latest, my latest care package, uh, Will had a bar of Lavanil soap, dude. And uh, it's awesome. It is awesome. I gotta bust it yeah. out then. I don't use bar yeah. soaps, but I'll go for that. You know what? I switched back to bar soaps because I got all these great ones from Will, and they're fantastic. There's so I, you know, I used to use bar soap back in the day. I always get really dry skin, yeah. and now I, now I use, I use these, and they're they're great. Okay, this sounds set up, but yeah, I'll I'll, I'll try them this week. Don't be alarmed if it runs brown. Yeah, La Vanilla is brown. It's, it's a brown soap, so like it makes brown water, but yeah, it filthy. just washes off of you. It yeah, washes off your, of you. And your walls, too, for, for what it's worth. Like, I've gotten it on the wall and be like, oh, no, that's going to be hard to clean up. It's not hard to clean up. Okay, good. It's, not hard to, it's just soap. It, it's self-cleaning. All right, yeah. So if, if you wanna if you want to check these things out and others, go over to Barrister and Man M A N N dot com. Use coupon code the Dive Down fifteen gets you fifteen percent off your first order of products over at Barrister and Man. Tell them the Dive Down sent you. You're gonna like the way you smell. I've never been more certain of any individual detail in my life. All right, so let's let's move on to another one that's even 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 more important to me, honestly. And I know this is a weird one because I've talked about this on the show before, but seriously, like I I want to get like tattoos about this concept. Like this is really central to my life, and that's in the same 
limited resources episode, I realized the same one, episode 57, November 5th, 2010, like I said, they talk about Tilt for the first time. And I'm going to tell kind of a long story about Tilt. We're trying to have a shorter podcast, so I'm trying to not go too long here. But when I heard this episode about Tilt, it was really a transformative thing in my life. So Stan, do you know what Tilt is? Yes, it's being upset about results to the point that it like starts to cloud your judgment and decisions and attitude and, and even enjoyment level. Yeah. And I think beyond that, you know, like you said, it clouds your ability to make decisions. It it's that really like deep anger that you have when something doesn't go the way that you that you want it to, that kind of like some people people express it different ways. Some people do way more things. Some people mm-hmm. find themselves suddenly unable to do anything when they're mm-hmm. tilting. It's just that I, that feeling of your your brain suddenly just being kind of like inaccessible to you because of something that just happened, I think. And you know, when I when I first heard this, not to get like too personal, but like this is a really rough time in in my life, the the end of 2010, you know, I had just gotten divorced. I was living like in a in a spare bedroom in a friend's apartment who had basically like agreed to take me in. I had had like a two bedroom condo and then was living in basically a nine by nine room in somebody else's house, like within a matter of months. Um, I was in a lot of upheaval. I started to notice that like, you know, I was having a hard time kind of like regulating emotional states because stuff wasn't going great at work. Stuff wasn't going great in my personal life. I was dealing with a lot of like random stuff that was happening and, um, you know, I had a lot of moments in my life at that point in time where I just felt like paralyzed by what I later realized honestly was anxiety, you know, and the kind of right around the same time was when I started picking up Magic about a year earlier during Zendikar Block. So 2009 was when I started playing Magic and like a lot of stuff was kind of messed up there. So I've been playing poker some. I definitely felt this feeling. I'd never thought about it really in deep I, I knew what tilt was and but in this episode they talk for a long time just about you know where it comes from how they try to regulate it and all these different things and that's when i started to find like similarities between you know stuff how i felt when stuff didn't happen at work and how when i would have a fight in a relationship how I, how i would act and when i would start to be reckless in a game of magic afterwards i realized that it all came from the same place, which was just kind of like being unable to deal with when something starts to go wrong, not knowing what to do next to keep it from from going wrong and basically going on tilt, you know? And um, for me, recognizing that feeling was a big, a big thing of, to me being able to kind of get under control. And it was a, it's a really like body, it's a full body sensation for me when I go on tilt. Like my, I like lose the ability to focus my eyes. Like I can feel my pulse increasing. I like don't talk to people. I get kind of like sullen for a second. Like I can really feel it happening. And their discussion really helped me be able to kind of start to figure out ways to deal with it in, in certain ways, or at least be able to work through it. Like, I don't think it's something that you can necessarily prevent from happening, but recognizing what's there, what it feels like, how it's going to persist and how you can not get stuck in that kind of like brain body loop where like, because you're tilting, your brain continues to make you tilt, then your body continues to tilt, then your brain continues to make you tilt. Like breaking that sort of loop um, was something that I've been working on for a long time. And actually like, I feel pretty good and 
able to control a lot at this point in time, especially when it comes to like losing at games or when things go badly quite often. Yeah. Um, when you're, when you're talking, I'm thinking about like when I tilt in real life as well. And like, it definitely is like, it's, it's a, it's a physical and mental, you know, combination of factors. Right. And like, I think it is going to present different for every person and at different levels, right? Like it could be, it could be hard and fast. It could be like a slow burn. It could be something that, you know, you could, I think you could low level tilt for three days or you could like, you know, tilt hard for 10 minutes and each could, each could have different significant drawbacks to your life or game. And so, you know, just having that recognition that this is a thing that other people felt and that really, you know, Weirdly, like being someone who was in my early 30s and in my 20s, it was like the first time I really sat down and went, and this is going to sound insane, but it was kind of like the first time I sat and went like, oh, I don't have everything on my life in lockdown, you know, mm-hmm. and there's this thing that happens in my body that lets me know you, you don't, you, these are consequences of like not having your situation on lockdown and being really angsty about the fact that I don't have it on lockdown. So a lot of what I've tried to do over the years to, to get okay with it is just more, some of it is honestly like breathing exercises, taking a minute to pause, f- focusing on, on the sensations and what's going on and, re- you know, re- trying to remind myself that they're temp- temporary, you know, that kind of stuff. And some of the rest of it is just understanding that it is a thing that is, will end if I let it end. And, and also of course, understanding, you know, being not being rotty actually plays into it a lot for me because being able to go back and go, where did I make a mistake? Did I make a mistake? Trying to be honest with myself about that actually helps dissipate the tilt feeling for me a lot too, because I can kind of get a little objective about it and be like, it's not about, it's not always about things that happened to me. Quite often it's about things that I did that I should have done better at that led to this outcome now, how can I go back and fix that in life? Or how can I make a better decision next time when I'm playing magic? You know, and I almost, one weird thing is that I almost tend to tell more now when I'm winning at, at something, when, when things are going really well, I get that anxiety too. And so I, I actually have to like, kind of keep an eye on it on both, both ends of the spectrum, because if I'm like three Oh, in a tournament, I need to go like sit and have a break to make sure that I don't totally lose it and like shove all in as soon as I have every chance to try to go four Oh in the next round which is a little weird, but it happens. Hmm. But anyway, this is something I think about every day, honestly. And I think about it today, you know, like there was a moment at my, my house this afternoon where like the kids were misbehaving kind of, my wife was having a really hard moment at work and was like trying to talk to me about it. At the same time that the kids were misbehaving, I was getting like angry emails from a client all at the same time. And I just kind of had to be like, okay, <laughs> like starting to well up, now's the time to just kind of like recognize like these things are happening and just kind of like chill for a second, you know, and then work through it. Um, because the big thing for me is not cutting off, which is what I tend to do is just like defer decisions, defer communication, all that kind of stuff. Did, did you learn any of these skills in therapy? No, no, unfortunately I, I would say like that, I should, that, I, there yeah. are many times in my life where I felt like I should have had professional therapy. and just never have done it. That, that's where I learned it, basically. It, with, I'm not going to go into into unnecessary detail, but just learning to kind of step back and look at your emotional reaction or emotional state as data, as just like 
objective, unbiased data, having that habit in your back pocket is just like a good way to start to find the the time or the moment you need to like begin to regulate again. And like, whether it's take deep breaths, step away, go for a walk, drink more, you know, balls, energy, drink, what, whatever you need to feel good right. about yourself. Right. Yeah. And balls sometimes get at us. <laughs> Sponsor our podcast. But so, last thing, sometimes about situations too. You know, I talked on here a little bit over the last couple of years about like having a really hard job. And I finally was just like, I, I just got a new job. I, I finally oh, got yeah. to the point where I was like, I got to just move into an environment where like, I feel like I'm at the right level of intensity for to feel good, feel productive, feel engaged and challenged, but also just not feel constantly overwhelmed. Because I think, you know, between coronavirus and like that whole work life thing, the last two years, there's been a lot of sections where I was like, wow, I've, I'm, I've been on tilt like all weekend or I've been on tilt all evening. Like, and that's, that's just not a way to, to be. So get in touch with it. If you know what I'm talking about. Thanks for sharing that, Dave. That glimpse into your personal life and struggles. Sorry, that was long. <laughs> no, so. I think that's really important. I mean, I think it's like, when I tilt at Magic, it's like all my other tilt comes out. Do you know what I mean? Like when I get mad at like losing a match of magic or something like that, like on arena or it's like before bed and I get upset. It's like, I'm not just upset at that. Right. It's like sort of like a buildup yeah. of the other yeah. crap that like I sort of been like dealing with throughout the day. And it's just like, well, I'm just sort of mad at a bunch of other things or just like upset at a bunch of other things. And I'm not controlling my emotional reactions to those things in like a way that really makes sense. And so I think that, you know, if you're a listener out there, I'm sure you've had some experience where you get get upset about stuff. And I think Dave, it's important to to bring that to people's attention. It's just like you know, think about how you emotionally respond to things because I definitely find that it does have negative impacts on on my life too. And I think that it reminds me to think about tactics and habits related to that. Just no one to vibe, y'all. Yeah, no thoughts, just vibe. Right? That's what people say. I have, have I don't know. Oh, that's what I say. <laughs> no one's ever said that to me. And now I'm mad. And I have a shirt. That's our new button. And then I think Shane had one last thought here. Sure. I'll make this fast. Um, I mean, I think the biggest life lesson for me, at least, is like your community can be a lot more important than what the community is formed around. Like also known as it's not a it's, it's about the gathering, not the magic. Or it's not about the magic. It's about the gathering, right? And like throughout my life, and I'm sure all of you out there if you're into card games like you've had hobbies and interests and educational experiences and maybe you've had some local groups you've worked with all the usual stuff and like what i found about all these things in my life is like they're formed around very different things but they're all really just building communities around those things and those communities are really what drives the engagement and the satisfaction and builds real relationships with other people in your lives and i think magic is special in that regard because it's a game that really requires other people to play it. And it's also a game that drives this really big and and intense and ongoing sense of community around it and a real community around it. Like there's people engaging with the game in the same way as you, as different ways than you. Maybe they just share similar goals to you or they just find having fun playing a game in the same way that you do, or they're people with similar personalities or even different personalities that you enjoy. And they have senses of humor that you enjoy and all those things that make a community and relationships valuable. And I think it's really important to embrace that community building and that camaraderie of something like MTG can offer. And 
I think it's important to embrace that because it's more impactful and perhaps more important, just in my opinion, than anything that the game itself can offer you. And I think that we've been really fortunate to have a community form around the podcast and this game that brings me at least a lot more ongoing enjoyment than just releasing this podcast week after week. I mean, I love talking to, you know, Dave and Stan every week, but, and I like playing games of magic, but honestly to have this ongoing community of people that are aligned in a lot of ways, philosophically and a lot of ways, uh, you know, sense of humor and all the things that I can enjoy about what we do as the podcast in an entity. Right. And yeah, that's important to me. I think is that, you know, embrace relationship building and release community building. The real magic was the friends you made along the way, right? You know, it's nice sometimes to also recognize when a community that you find yourself in isn't a good fit for you. And I have left old chat rooms and forums and Facebook groups because I realized we have some bad actors here who just want to watch the world burn. And maybe not all communities are, are worth your time, even if there is a shared interest that binds you. And with that, we did it. We did a show in under two hours. Yay. It's not under, not under an hour and a half, though, I don't think. So, should we squeeze in some Cool Dex Inc. just to round it out? <laughs> Next week, the return of Cool Dex Inc. But until then, that does wrap up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, you can tweet us at the dive down all one word. Or you can email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Supporting us at any tier gets you access to our Discord server where we will go to an airport for you in search of lost luggage. It can happen to anyone. Checking bags. You never know where they go. Shout out to Manitraders for sponsoring the Dive Down. Sign up for a Manitraders account using promo code THEDIVEDOWN15, all one word, and get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. And also get some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more over at Barrister and Man using the Dive Down 15 for 15% off your first order. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and get better at magic while getting better at love.